0: Thanks, Margaret. Happy days then. Ezekiel chapter 8. All ready for a roller coaster ride with Ezekiel? All the usual stuff. Hashtag is uh, there. Do tweet away. Although you'll be more cautious about your tweets because they'll seem less palatable uh, this morning as we get into these verses in Ezekiel. But let that tell you something about the willingness we are to speak about some characters of God and our less willingness. Is that right? Less willing. Whatever. We don't want to do the other one as much. So there's some characters about God that we want to promote because we think that if we promote certain characters about God, we'll make him sound appealing. And there are other kind of characteristics about God that we're not so sure about ourselves, so we're not going to promote them unless because they might put people off. Uh, Is that the truth, though, really? Is it not a revelation of the true God that draws people to him? Sherry's sure. Thank you. Uh, it's a challenge, isn't it? And as we get into these verses of Ezekiel, we'll, we'll face that challenge and we'll feel that tug and catch up on the things that you've missed. If you get to the end of this sermon and you think, oh my word, that was awful, then there are some better sermons, I think, before this one. So you can go and have a look there and uh, be encouraged. This week, SNAP. And you'll see why in a little while's time. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we get into your word? We believe that all of your word is useful because all of it is inspired and it teaches and corrects and it rebukes and it trains us and we need every part of it. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. We get then to the very heart of what Ezekiel is all about. The essence of the message that Ezekiel brings to the people is that God is a judge and he will judge his people. That's what lies at this. Strip everything else away. The message of Ezekiel is this. God is a judge and he will judge his people. In fact, when Ezekiel started his ministry, God's judgment had in some way already started. You'll know that Ezekiel should have been living and ministering in Jerusalem, but with others of a particular class, as the Babylonians had taken control over that part of their empire, had taken many into exile. Ezekiel was one of those. And there is a sense in which God's judgment is well underway as we begin to look at these verses. Israel has been conquered and some are already living in exile in Babylon. But the full force of what God was going to do, the full force of how God was going to judge his people was still yet to come. And as we look at these chapters, um, chapters 7 through to chapter 11, so have Ezekiel open in front of you, chapters 7 through to uh, 11, we see the guts of Ezekiel's prophecy of what will happen to Jerusalem and why it will happen to Jerusalem. And, and as I said, you might need to hold on to your seats because it's not especially easy Reading. But it does teach us something, that it is absolutely essential for us to understand about God, otherwise nothing else makes sense. If you don't understand this about God, the cross of Jesus makes no sense. If you don't understand this about God, Jesus' coming makes no sense. If you don't understand this about God, the mission that we're embarked in as a church makes no sense. It is absolutely crucial to our understanding. Are you ready? (laughs) Overwhelmed by the burst of enthusiasm that nearly washed me off my feet. Okay, here we go. Chapter 7 to begin, verse 1. Let's uh, uh, pick the story up there. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end, the end has come. Upon the four corners of the land. Verse 3, this verse that's on the screen. The end is now upon you and I will unleash my anger. This is God speaking. I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will surely repay you for your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Who's got that verse as a fridge magnet? No, it doesn't feature in the top 10 verses. It hasn't been one of your verses of the year, ever. Maybe it will after this morning. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, verse 5. Disaster, an unheard of disaster is coming. Verse 6, in case you've missed it. The end has come, the end has come. It has aroused itself against you. It has come. First thing, we all need to understand, God's judgment is real. God's judgment is... Is real. The Bible doesn't pull its punches. The Bible doesn't gloss over this. The Bible doesn't fudge it in a way that simply says, well, the Babylonians, they were a big powerful empire and, uh, and, and poor Jerusalem and Israel didn't stand a chance against such a mighty... No, no, the Bible is very clear that the disaster that is coming that is going to take place because the Babylonians will literally smash Jerusalem to pieces. Remember the siege, uh, a picture that we had a fortnight ago, is God's doing. I will judge you... I will do it, says the Lord. Other parts of the Bible are equally as clear that uh, this kind of judgment is God's doing. Um, this is a, another verse that you'll have on your fridge. Here we go. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with their sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed God, God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't say God turned a blind eye. It doesn't say God couldn't stop it, doesn't say God was somehow caught off guard, Uh, God did this. And we've seen that already. We saw that in the image of Ezekiel with that iron pan around that little model of Jerusalem that he built, that we read about in chapters 4 and 5 a fortnight ago. It was God that would come against Jerusalem. Now let's be absolutely clear, no one here likes this subject. This is not easy for us to look at, to think about, to get our heads around, but if we're true to God's Word, it is a theme that runs from beginning to end, and by the end of this morning, in the next 15-20 minutes, I want us to gather a big Bible perspective on what this is all about, that we might understand it in the way the Bible presents it to us. So, let's get a little perspective as we begin. We are very small. Some of us are smaller than others. Some of us are bigger than others. That's just as funny, really, looking around. Um, God is very, very big. You okay with that? So far, so far, so good? Everything is God's. Would you agree? So God is free to do exactly what he wants with all that's his. Would you agree? Sure? Nothing is yours or mine. Would you agree? Everything is a gift. I didn't create it. You didn't produce it. We were given it. So we would say, I have no right even to take my own life because it's not my life to take. I certainly have no right to take your life because it's not mine to take. Because ultimately your life and mine belongs to God Himself. But what if God chose to take away something that he himself alone had given. Would that be fair? Would that be his right? Would that be okay? It's hard, isn't it? But that's the reality, the perspective with which the Bible comes that's different to ours, that says actually he is the sovereign Lord. And we see this in verse 1 of uh, chapter uh, 7 there. The word of the Lord, L-O-R-D in capitals, Yahweh, the great God, the great I am, the one who is and always will be. Verse 2, the sovereign Lord. If that's true, if it is all His, if it all came from Him, then God's judgment is His Right. If he's sovereign, then it's his right to do with his stuff as he chooses. Agreed? Now, as we begin to explore the context, there are a few more truths that help us gain a better perspective than the one we probably have right now. Because right now, even though we understand intellectually and logically that it all comes from God, therefore he can give and he can take away and it's his right and we have no say in the matter, there isn't anybody here who goes, oh well, everyone down here is feeling a tug in their heart. Or, or you've tuned out already. Hello? Just checking you hadn't all tuned out already, in which case we get on communion and we can all be home for an early lunch. We need to understand what's happening here. Small children have tantrums. In fact, big children have tantrums. Even adults sometimes have tantrums. And you will all have been in that moment when you turn the corner in the aisle shopping and there is a parent going absolutely ballistic with their child. I'm sorry about that. I shouldn't have done it. I know. You've all seen that. And in that moment, you have a certain empathy and compassion with this small child who's getting the stuffing metaphorically kicked out of them for their behavior. And you are thinking, it probably isn't that bad. And if only the mum or the dad was more reasonable, then the kid wouldn't be behaving in that kind of way. If it's a woman, a mother Then you feel empathy with the mother. If it's a man, you think that dad hasn't got a clue. (laughs) But what you haven't seen is that for the last three hours, there has been an escalating level of behavior to which the parent has been adding a a, a different, ineffective actually, uh, punishment or sanction or if you do this, blah, blah, blah. So what you see are the final moments of what's been going on for several hours. And what it looks like to you is that a mum or a dad is giving metaphorically this child the right beating for something relatively small because you cannot see the sweep of what's been happening. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah? And if you understood the sweep of, of what's been happening, then you would look at that particular incident in a different perspective. We have to understand the sweep of what's been happening. That what we see here is not something that's just come on the horizon in the last few days or the last few months or even the last few years. This is coming at the end of how many years? Who remembers a fortnight ago? 300 and something, brilliant, 390 years, Ezekiel, 390 days, Ezekiel was to lie on his side, representing 390 years, where the the, the evil and the wickedness of God's people had escalated over and over and over again. And God had put sanctions in, God had sent warnings, God had sent prophets, but still the behavior had carried on and grown and spiraled out of all control. What happens here is the consequence of 390 years of wicked behavior spiraling out of control. And in Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel is taken in the Spirit, so not physically, but a revelation, back to Jerusalem so he can see what's still going on in Jerusalem in order that he can report back to the people in exile and explain why God is now after 390 years finally going to carry out the judgment that he had been threatening for decades if not several centuries and so when we look at chapter 8 which is what we had read to us it is the the time of Ezekiel back in Jerusalem In the Spirit, he's got a vision or he's being transported back there. Don't ask me to explain how that works. God knows how that works. In the Holy Spirit, he's taken back to Jerusalem to see all that's still going on there. And there's all kinds of stuff going on. Have your Bible open, chapter 8. We haven't got time to do this in any detail other than to point out some of the highlights. Verse 5 of chapter 8, the idol of jealousy that is where that's inside the temple. Where God was supposed to live. Inside the temple is an idol to the cult of Baal. It's part of the Asherah cult. The Asherah pole that you'll have heard about in other places. Which involved every degraded sexual practice you could mention. Where's that happening? In the temple. Like right here. Like a a prostitute shop. Shrine, right here. That's what Ezekiel sees that's going on in the temple. The temple was surrounded by debauchery and religious prostitution. Verse seven onwards, another part of the temple, more detestable practices, right behind closed doors, in the inner sanctuary, where the priests were able to go, in the vestry, kind of thing. The priests are in there and they're worshipping the gods of Egypt using seances in order to invoke the Egyptian gods to help defend them against the Babylonians. Where is their trust? Who are they putting their trust in now? Who are they selling their souls to now? Where is their allegiance now? It's all there in these verses. Verse 14, another part of the temple. They're mourning for Tammuz. Tammuz was a, a pagan hero, or pagan heroine, I should say. And, uh, it was a cult associated with death. There in the place where they should have worshipped life, they were selling their souls to the worship of pagan mythology and bowing down to a dead hero. And so this kind of thing goes on through chapter 8, verse 16. The NIV makes it all posh and pretty because they know that the Bible's going to be read in churches. But literally, verse 16 says, they raise their backsides as an insult to God. Where is all this happening? This is happening in the temple, in the heart of God's presence So you get the picture. Sin has spiraled out of control. Was it really that bad? Well, look how the Bible describes it elsewhere, or listen rather to how, or you can look how the Bible describes it elsewhere. This is a summary of all that had been going on. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. That wasn't unusual in those days for all kinds of pagan religions to, uh, in, to, to carry out child sacrifice. Where's that now happening? In Jerusalem and in the temple. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Okay, here we go. 390 years escalating violence, escalating wickedness, escalating evil to the point that they're sacrificing their own children in fire and openly embracing Satanism and witchcraft. What kind of God wouldn't step in to stop that? What kind of God wouldn't step in to stop all that? You see, God's judgment is reasonable. It's tempting to say, I wish God wouldn't judge. I don't like that side of God but I don't think we mean it. Imagine a world where evil was allowed to flourish and we knew there would never ever be any check. There would never be anyone holding anyone else to account. Where evil was allowed to grow unrestrained, to infiltrate, to demolish every residue of God's goodness on the earth. Is that what we would go for? No. So we go for a God who in the end will say, enough is enough. We're glad for God's judgment because it protects us, because in the end it provides for us. In the end, I can sleep with confidence because evil will not win. Thank you. And so God's judgment, far from being something that we, that we need to ignore or, or, or shove to one side, to be embarrassed or awkward about, is something actually to cling to. It's a grace of God that in the end, He says, enough is enough. So we'd agree that God's judgment is required, or this world will destroy itself from the inside out. And so we're around chapter 9 now, if you've still got Ezekiel open in front of you. And there in chapter 9, Ezekiel is given a vision, uh, an illustration of what will happen. And it's a a horrific chapter about how the the Babylonians will come in and they'll smash the the place to smithereens. And as you read what happens in Ezekiel chapter 9, and you think, oh my word, this is awful. You're right, it's awful. But it's come after 390 years. Because you need to remember that God's judgment, in the end, is very slow. It's very slow. You and I would have gone ballistic along before God. Don't you think? This is not a fly-off-the-handle, God. This is not a God who's petulant and moody and, uh, and, and just flies off at what's going on and says, right, I'm going to sort them out. This is a God who's full of love and compassion. In fact, the Old Testament, where we think of God as being angry, the Old Testament talks of God as being a God of love and compassion who is slow to anger and abounding in love. 390 years, one generation, that's all, will end up in exile. God is much more patient than we are. And why is God patient? Because He's longing. He's longing for change. God's patience is because he's longing for change. He waited so long, he sent them prophet after prophet, message after message. Occasionally there were glimpses of people that would rise up and live in a godly way, but soon they would be lost in this avalanche of evil that went on decade after decade after decade. The vast majority of people didn't change. And in the end, God meted out what he'd said he would. And it's an awful moment to parent when you get to that point, isn't it? Hello? Do, do, do you know, your, your kids think you're livid with them and just want to beat the living daylights out of them. But 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 it's, it's like, ah, oh, that, that it's come to this when it needn't have. But it's come to this moment, and you need to feel the weight with which the Old Testament gives this, after the years of waiting and the, and the patience and God holding back and the, the cries of prophets like Hosea and Amos and, 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 and through Amos, uh, sorry, through Hosea, God saying, "I've raised you like a little child, you're, you're my baby, I love you. It's me that I've taught you to walk, and now it's come to this, really? And still the people wouldn't change. Still they wouldn't turn. But woven into these verses is a reality of God's judgment that is way more deadly than what the Babylonians were bringing. And I want you to see it to make sure you don't miss it. There is a judgment way more deadly than what would happen to Jerusalem and the temple and the people in it. The most deadly part of God's judgment is that His presence slips away. It is the most awful consequence of always living against God's purpose. Look at the progression with me. You've got your Bibles there? Uh, you'll need them. These are verses are not on the screen. Ezekiel 8 and verse 4. This is right at the beginning. Ezekiel's just gone back to Jerusalem. And where's God's presence? God's presence, God's glory is there in the temple where Ezekiel would have expected it to be. God was still there. After 390 years of debauchery, God was still there. But now judgment was coming. Verse 3 of chapter 9. Now the glory or the presence of God of Israel, uh uh-oh, is on the move, went up from above the angels, the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold, to the doorway, to the edge of the temple. There is nothing more devastating to God's people than to see that happen. The presence, the glory of God, was moving out. And it's there on the threshold of the temple. And then we get into Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. So the same chariots that carried God's presence in, you remember, those rims that are high and awesome, is now carrying God's presence away. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. So it's moved from the threshold of the temple right to the gate And then verse 22 of chapter 11, then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. It's gone from the middle of the temple to the edge of the temple, left the temple into the city, left the temple and now it's left the city all together. The ultimate reality of God's judgment is the removal of His presence. And that's the most awful, most sobering, most most taxing, most whatever that we could think about this morning. It is the most devastating judgment of all to find ourselves outside of God's presence. But even here, God is offering hope. He hovers over the East Mountain because there's always the opportunity for future hope always the possibility of restoration always the possibility of renewal and, and that's the whole point of the exile the exile lasted for a number of years and ezekiel would soon start prophesying that the god who would judge them would one day very soon bring them back how cool is god to do that hmm. not sure still cross with god for kicking them out So why, why snap? Why why snap? Why snap? We got five minutes. Why snap? You see, we're we're caught by the same sins. If we had a time for a sermon on Ezekiel chapter eight, and the sins that were illuminated, they're, they're just the kind of things that lie in our hearts, the idols that are in the corner of our rooms. Uh, physically maybe, but metaphorically I was thinking. The, the idols that occupy our lives, our time, and our attention. We are caught by the same sins. And, 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 the, and another snap is this. The reason God in the end was fierce in his judgment of Jerusalem was that of all the nations, they should have known better, shouldn't they? They were the people that knew God. They knew His glory. They knew His grace. They knew the works of His hands. But still they rebelled because they were there to be a light to the other nations. Jerusalem had a responsibility To be the light. And if you look in Ezekiel chapter 5, it talks about the fact that Jerusalem was surrounded by other nations in order to be the influencer, in order to be God's city in the midst of the pagan cities. And they had failed miserably. We are responsible to be the same light. And when we look like everybody else, the same judgment hovers over us. And it snaps because we can so easily lose God's presence. You notice how in those verses, God's presence slipped away almost unnoticed. Have you ever gone through a period of your life and you've looked back and you think, crikey, I've lost God's presence. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And, and, and there was no trumpet blast, there was no fanfare, there was no, woo, I'm, I'm off now, God doesn't work, but just slipped away. And Jesus said the same thing to the churches in Revelation. He said, if you don't sort your act out, if you don't repent, if you don't sort up the mess that's in your lives, the lampstand will be blown out. My presence will just slip away. And it can happen without us hardly noticing. And then some big things, as if those three things aren't big enough. Some big snaps that there are. When we look at what happened in the Old Testament, and we think about the whole of the human race, you see what happened in those times, in that story, is written down in the Bible as a testimony to how God works throughout all time, and throughout all history, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he works in the same ways. The human race has rebelled, and we live in an awful world of tragedy and pain, God will come as judge. There will be a time when God will say enough is enough and his judgment on this world will be real. That's what the rest of the Bible teaches us. All this is evidence, said Paul to the Thessalonians, that God's judgment is right and this will happen when the Lord Jesus himself is revealed and returns. And when that happens, the Bible says that many will lose His presence. The word the Bible uses to describe that is hell. Hell isn't a place that's made bad. Hell is just a place where God's presence has been withdrawn. It's an awful thing. And there will be darkness. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But God is still slow. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come the repentance. All who turn are rescued. That's exactly the same message, just as they were in Ezekiel's day. Uh, one, of the, one of the little themes within those few verses is how Ezekiel was looking for people that were weeping and lamenting all that was going on, all the wickedness that there was. And there were people, in Ezekiel's day, who were standing against this colossal tide of evil, and God rescued them. All who turn, God rescues. But there's one thing that isn't snap. There's one thing that is true in the final end that wasn't true at Ezekiel's end. One thing that isn't snap. And that's that there will come an end when there is no future hope. That's what the Bible teaches. There will come an end when there is no future hope for those who haven't turned. And so, whereas we see God has been so slow and patient for 390 years, with this world, God has been slow and patient for however many thousand years you choose to think the world's existed for. I couldn't care less personally. But it's a pretty long time, that God's been very, very patient. And so the, the Old Test sorry the New Testament ends by saying, look, look, it, you know, it's been such a long time. You can twiddle your thumbs and become complacent about it, but then suddenly the end will come. God will say, "Enough's enough. I can't let this carry on any more," and the end will come. And that might be the biggest issue for you this morning. That if the end comes you're not sure you've turned yet. You're not sure you've put yourself right with a God who loves you and says, "I, I long for something more for you. Come back to me now. Come back to me today. Come back to me in these moments. Do you know for certain that hope that because God is judge, He will bring all this nonsense to an end and take us to something that's more glorious than we could ever imagine? That's the deal. That's what Ezekiel's story is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the whole of the Bible is all about. That's what all of history is about. God coming himself and saying, look, I'll stand in the gap for you. I'll die on the cross for the mess that you've made and I'll long for you to turn. And I'm waiting just like a parent says, look, I'm going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another chance. But there comes a day when there is no more chance. And it came in Ezekiel's time for those people. But for those people, there would be another chance, or at least for the next generation. But there will come a time for this world when there is no more second chance. Do you know for certain the hope that there is in Jesus today? And there are loads of other questions you might be asking yourself after uh, our little foray in Ezekiel 7 to 11. Maybe you thought that God's judgment is just because he's an angry, moody kind of God. Maybe it's time to say sorry to God that you thought of him like that. Because that's not the God that the Bible bears witness to. Maybe you thought that any lifestyle will do because in the end God's not really going to judge. He just loves everybody and he wants us to be happy and and he's not too fussed. That's not the God that we read about in the Bible. Maybe as you went into the temple like Ezekiel did and there was an idol standing there and, uh, and I said, we've all got idols in our lives. You knew exactly what your idol was this morning and it's time to smash it down. Maybe you're thinking this morning, as I asked the question, has God's presence slipped away? And you look back and you thought of a time when God was really close and this morning you go, actually, his presence for me is not like that anymore. Or maybe when I said that God's placed us, Jerusalem, to be a light to the nations, you thought about where God's placed you, and you weren't quite sure how different you were from those that were around you, and therefore how bright your light really is. There are so many things for us to reflect on in these verses. So so many things to change our perspective and to refresh and to renew our thinking. But why did God send Ezekiel to them that day? Because he wanted them to understand what he was really like. And what he was really like is that after the judgment, after the punishment, after the, after the mess that they'd created, God would bring them back. Uh, and that's the message of Ezekiel in the end. That God brings us back when we say, yeah, I, I'm going to turn, I, I, can't, I, I'm not, I, I can't live like this anymore. I, I'm going to turn, I'm coming back and God's there ready, waiting. Just like he is in the story of the prodigal son, just like he would be in Ezekiel's day. Same God, same story, same idea, same theme, God's grace again, and again, and again, and again. Let's stand and sing before the throne of God above, and then we'll share communion together, and in the sharing of communion, we'll have opportunity for us to respond.